There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This is going to be a great show. Uh, we're talking about food safety with a veteran of the quick service business. Uh, quick service is fast food to you and me, and it's something that almost everyone in the developed world consumes on a regular basis. So it's an amazing area if you're a technologist to focus on. You want your technology in the hands of a huge business uh, that has masses of product and customers, and then QSR is a great area to focus. It's something that I have done throughout my career, and there's a lot to learn about it. Obviously, we all know what a hamburger is, uh, but you lift up the covers and the operations and the technology behind the scenes are very significant. And so Rick Butner is uh, stepping out from the time that he's worked in the orbit of Subway and IPC, uh, which is a uh, supplier consortium that's part of the uh, Subway ecosystem. And he's uh, focusing on the FDA's FISMA 204 regulation, the rule that everyone that's involved in food has to comply with. And he spent a lot of time thinking about it and preparing for it in one of the biggest food businesses in the world. So he knows a lot. He's also part of the GS1 Food Safety Modernization Act 204 working group, which uh, I've had the pleasure of joining myself. Uh, and I can tell you that he is an insider in that respect. He knows a lot of the vendors. So do tune in. Uh, he's also a very interesting guy. Uh, I hope uh, you stay to hear his music choices uh, at the end of the show. Great show about food. We all eat uh, about technology uh, that uh, many of us are either selling or implementing. Uh, and a critical driver for food and technology coming together, which is FISMA. Hope you enjoy it. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. Well, Rick, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to to have you on. You've got a ton of experience in uh um, this area that we're focusing on, QSR, quick service uh, restaurants. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. So we'll, uh, we'll spend some time defining what QSR is and the food services uh, uh, business in, in, in a minute. But um, 
you know, essentially fast food restaurants. Um, and, you know, ever since I started focusing on technology and retail, I've become a huge advocate and enthusiast about QSR. Uh, and my wife was saying, why QSR? Why, why are you talking about QSR on an IoT podcast? But, you know, um, it's a bit like music. Uh, if we were a band, if uh, Rick, you and I started a band, we'd probably have a lot of fun. But the, the fun really starts if people are listening and using, engaging with you. And if you can uh, get a hit, then um, then it becomes meaningful. You can change things, uh, influence things. And, um, you know, the reality is, certainly here in America, I think the stat is like, um, one in three people uh, will go to a quick service restaurant during the week. Oh, that's what I uh, I read. Maybe you have better data on that, uh, Rick. But we, we all shop, we all eat. And what better way as technologists who want to have people uh, use our stuff than looking at QSR? And I think QSR is all about scale and efficiency. You know, beyond, uh, uh, I mean, you care about efficiency and everything, but uh, you're dealing with um, huge volumes and your uh, operational staff are young and pretty inexperienced. And uh, uh, I often look back at my early days at McDonald's when I was a teenager as being the closest to joining the military. You know, you, you take this raggedy crew and you <laughs> deliver a quality experience at scale. Uh, and, you know, the reality is uh, even during World War II, only 10% of America uh, served in the in the armed forces, but uh, one in three uh, of the population work in a in a QSR. So it's uh, shaping us as consumers. It's shaping uh, us as uh, as as workers. So I think it's very significant, uh, and the link with technology is strong. Uh, Rick, you're an expert in this area. Um, uh, I, I'm going to ask you about your background again, uh, just briefly, but any comments on what I've said? Do you, do you want to disagree with or amplify anything uh, that I've said just now? No, I, I completely agree. In fact, um, I even saw an ad by McDonald's, like one in eight people, you know, start their, that's their first job is working at a McDonald's. And if you take the entire QSR industry, that number's got to be close to 50% of the you know kids that start out getting a job, do it in a QSR of one, one shape or fashion. And the industry is very dynamic. Um, it is one that doesn't change easily, though, uh, because of what you said. They're so regimented and they're so focused on, on their brand and their products and doing things the way they've always done it, that changes changes and easy in some in most QSRs. I can't say all; some of them do change and adapt, but uh, a lot of them don't. So I think that's what makes it so ripe for technology. I think it really needs technology. As I was saying in the. Uh, uh, the intro, uh, you've got a ton of experience. You've uh, you've worked as a manager uh, of a store, of store, of of restaurants. Uh, you've worked um, uh, you've worked at Subway, at uh, at IPC. So I want to use this time with you to cover three things. One is let's let's get the audience up to speed on QSR. 
Uh, let's define it and explain a little bit about how it works. Because even though we all use it, or most of us use it, uh, a lot of people don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, I, I do want to talk about the technology, and I want to talk about food safety. FISMA 204, you've been very active in that area. And I think we both agree that this is a catalyst for driving um, change and technology into this massive industry um, that is everywhere. You know, every town pretty much has some kind of QSR. Even the smallest uh, uh, town uh, will probably have a subway uh, in it. So um, let's uh, uh, let's start off with um, how do you define QSR? What what is QSR? Well, it stands for Quick Serve Restaurant, and generally it's it's a uh, restaurant that you go into that has a a focus, whether it's chicken, whether it's hamburgers, whether it's sandwiches, pizza. Uh, they have a specialty, and their menus tend to be somewhat limited. Uh, but their goal is to get you in and out quickly. That's the quick serve. And they're, um, they're focused on doing a lot of customers in a day. They're not happy with somebody that, that you know, uh, turning a table every hour. They're, they're wanting to turn hundreds of people through a restaurant within an hour if they can. So... Simplicity, efficiency is is key to their operations. Um, very repeatable, um, easy to teach, easy to train uh, new new employees, and generally uh, in the QSR industry, we have about a two hundred and fifty percent turnover in the course of a year, maybe even higher in some. So. You are training people all the time. That's why you have to have simplicity and, and ease of training. And, and the difference between what they call fast casual and QSR is fast, fast casual like a Panera, for instance. We'll have a much broader menu. Uh, they want people to come in and, and stay and hang out and, and get you know a sandwich and or bowl of soup and stick around and have dessert and maybe coffee later. And so they're, they're not as interested in getting people in and out quickly mm -hmm. as a, your typical QSR. So there's some very obvious candidates for that category, the Subway, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, KFC, uh, all, all of those. Uh, what about Starbucks? Is Starbucks a QSR or is it a fast casual? Or? I think Starbucks is, is more a QSR. They, I agree. they want to get people in and out. And another thing most QSRs have done is done a very good job of developing a mobile app. Yes. So they can get orders ahead of time and they don't even have to greet the customer. They come in, yeah. they grab it, and they go. Yeah. Um, so Starbucks fits that, that category, I think. And drive-through is a huge part of their business, which seems to be another attribute of uh, of. of uh, of QSRs as well, although obviously the pandemic and all that sort of stuff, there's more a kind of omni-channel thing for uh, uh, for for the fast casual uh, folks. And I, I was surprised that that um, uh, you know increasingly drive-through can be the biggest part of a QSR's business, right? Oh, absolutely. You look at Chick Fil A, and some of them you look at they have three drive-through lanes. You know, and they're busy all day long. 
I mean, it's really kind of mind-numbing to see to see how many people go through their drive-throughs in a day. But yes, drive-through is a is a usually a high percentage of of their business. It's such a huge market, and we we consume so much of it. Um, it seems like well, this is like printing money, but it turns out that it's actually pretty hard to run these uh, operations. And I want to talk about one thing that is sort of like the strength and the weakness of QSR, which is the franchise model. And it seems like franchising and QSR, that that goes hand in hand as well. I know there are some operations that don't. I think like, uh, um, uh, what is it? White Castle is uh, wholly owned. Uh, the original uh, quick service restaurant, arguably, uh, is White Castle, uh, made famous by the movie, but... Uh, um, uh, uh, and then there's like in and out and so forth. But generally, uh, am, am I right in saying that franchising is is a big part of that business? It is. And, you know, the world I came from at Subway, we were 100% franchised. There was no company-owned restaurants. And I think a lot of brands over the past decade have uh, gone away from corporate ownership to franchising and they keep a small portion of restaurants as company restaurants so they can go in and play and do whatever they want to do. Uh, but they find it more profitable to franchise because they don't, you don't have the, the real estate, you don't have the building upkeep and the equipment upkeep and all this that goes into, uh, into owning a restaurant. So they're freeing up capital to do other things. So they're going to franchise. So what if if I want to uh, open up a, uh, um, a QSR and I'm I don't want to start from scratch? Um, how much does it cost me to buy uh, a, uh, a a license QSR license and uh, and what do I get for my money? Uh, that really varies brand to brand. I mean, it, it's very wise. Uh, yeah, we used to say that for Subway, you can open, I forget what it was, six or seven Subways for the cost of opening one McDonald's. Um, so it, it it really varies, and the services that they provide vary, but generally the brand has to be able to enable uh, the franchisee to operate their restaurant the way that the brand wants it operated. That's the basic bottom line premise of of being a franchisee the the brand has to provide you the tools they'll provide you the know-how and maybe you know this is where you buy the equipment this is what you need to do and here's training materials for your for your uh staff um and others get much more involved but it's it's very it's there's a wide range it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars that are right to uh, to buy. Uh, it, it can be, yes. Yeah. And the flip side of that, which, you know, in trying to sell technology to QSLs, um, the pushback that I've received is, well, you know, we don't actually own the restaurants. <laughs> and so uh, this technology seems great, uh, but we can't just tell uh, the operators what they do in every aspect of the business. And clearly this is a, it varies type answer as well, right? Um, uh, but your uh, experience is, um, 
I guess, deepest at Subway. Um, and I remember certainly, um, you know, quite a few years ago, um, the, the, there was a lot of uh, fragmentation of the point of sale platforms and McDonald's was like one of the first. I, I, when I worked in McDonald's, it was in 1979 and we were using the same software platform that they were using in Dallas, Texas. You know, it was, uh, it was amazing. And that, that, and that was, I think, in, a de- in an era where a lot of people had me- mechanical <laughs> point of sales, they were pressing levers and there were, there were bells going off as the, uh, the cash drawer uh, shot out. Uh, the whole order management and uh, inventory was being driven. Um, but now I think it's increasingly. Is that part of the package? Like if I was to buy a Subway a franchise, uh, would they um, tell me, here's where you get your... Uh, point of sale devices and uh, uh, they all uh, are using the same uh, software release for the point of sale system yes they are yeah they've they've come a long way in that regard and I you know I think you kind of hit on it a little bit uh, for QSRs I think their focus on technology that they've invested in has been uh, focusing on some on tools that will enhance the customer experience whether it be uh, POS systems, digital menu boards, mobile apps, um, that's where their investments have focused on. Because as you, as you said, they, they will come back and say, I don't own the brand. I don't own the supply chain. I don't, you know, that's not my realm of responsibility uh, from day to day. What I do is I ring up sales uh, and greet customers and, and try to make their experience the best possible. So that's where I think you'll see a lot of QSRs have invested uh, money. And I think almost to the exclusion of investing in supply chain technologies. Supply chain technologies are kind of the, the last frontier when it comes to QSRs, in my opinion. So if I'm running a QSR, can I buy my product from, who do I buy my product from? Uh, this is probably. Uh, they, they, they will tell you. Yeah. They will tell you this is a product you have to buy and you have to buy it in your area. This is your distributor and open an account with this distributor and they'll tell you what days you're going to get your orders. So you used to work for IPC. This is probably Mm -hmm. a a good case study. Can you explain a bit about uh, who IPC is and how they relate to Subway and uh, its uh, franchisees? Uh, IPC was started in 1996. You know, Subway's been around since 1965. So it was, you know, it got into the game when there were probably 15,000 restaurants uh, and now in North America, IPC services, oh, about 25,000 restaurants. Um, but IPC is a franchisee-owned purchasing cooperative. And that model's not unusual in the, in the QSR industry. Quite a few other brands have uh, purchasing cooperatives. And our role was to, uh, Subway would still give us specs for the product. They were required to approve suppliers and the products that they produced. 
but our job was to uh, optimize the supply chain to get it to the restaurants as efficiently and cheaply as possible uh, so that they could you know, have lower food costs. So that was basically um, the model of IPC. Uh, we we uh, are the franchisees are their members. They are their members, but they also are their owners. So there's been a franchisee board of directors, which include a few other people now. But um, but yeah, that's kind of the model uh, for a purchasing cooperative. It's very franchisee focused. It has to have a good relationship with the brand. Can't operate outside the brand, but um, it's it's there to drive efficiencies for for the franchisees. So, in terms of a source of technology for the franchisees, then potentially that cooperative is is providing technology as well as um, you know delivering. Uh, buns and uh, lettuce and uh, and that sort of thing i assume uh yes i mean i i can't speak for all of them but at subway we had developed a a uh, in restaurant inventory management tool uh that that ipc licensed for all the franchisees to use free of charge um, and that tool was initially for taking inventory but then it evolved into receiving your your inventory, your deliveries in. Uh, it could do that automatically, so that the restaurant manager didn't have to keep punching them in to their uh, to the POS. It also turned into our ordering platform. All of our restaurants would order through through that uh, tool as well. So, so yes, there are technology tools that supply chain. Uh, teams and or purchasing cooperatives can help develop uh, to to help franchisees operate more efficiently. Very good. Well, um, there's so much to talk about, but I think just uh, having a little bit of a wallow in all of the technology that is being used, you, you touched on an, a number of the, the, the technology trends and deliverables uh, a little bit earlier in our conversation, but you know, this this podcast's about IoT, and really, we started primarily on Bluetooth beacons. And of course, Bluetooth beacons have been deployed in quick service restaurants uh, fairly extensively, although not not as much as I was expecting. But and probably one of the most notable deployments is uh, by McDonald's, and uh, I believe um, they use Radius Networks uh, devices. You see these table tents, and they uh, end up on the on, on the tables and uh, increasingly, you know, I remember when I worked at a QSR, it was, I think, the, the 14th McDonald's in the entire United Kingdom. And um, so people in England hadn't been trained on what to do in a fast food place. So people would sit at the table and start shouting us as we stood behind the counter saying, you know, when's the... <laughs> person coming to take my order and where's the cutlery and uh, uh, why are the portions so small of these things that you're calling french fries that I call uh, chips <laughs> and 
it was it was quite bizarre at first, but now you know it's second nature to every teenager in the United Kingdom what to do in a McDonald's or a Subway or. But um, and and obviously that process flows differently in different categories of uh, of of QSR, but um, it seems now that um, there's they're try it seems like QSRs are trying to eliminate the order taking, um, and they're focusing on the delivery. And if they have to go to your table to do it, then they'll they'll do it. Or, uh, I, I guess they'd prefer you to come up and uh, and pick it up your yourself. So that seems to be one area of figuring out where the customer is, is sometimes a, a desirable thing. Uh, having um, uh, technology to uh, look at who's in the drive-in queue and what orders they ended up is, is, a, is another area. Can you speak to any other major kind of uh, deployments of what might be called Internet of Things technology in, uh, in, in fast food that you think is, is notable or just technology in general? Yeah, I think one that's pretty notable and I think very valuable is um, temperature monitoring. Um, that is something that a lot of QSRs do and do it very effectively. In the supply chain for the food? Well, in, even in the restaurant, once it's there, um, somebody could prop a cooler door open and get called up front and they never close it and Eventually, it's going to send an alarm off to people that, you know, can see it on their phone. You know, so I think temperature monitoring within the restaurant is is a very good use of IoT. Um, you said on their phone. So um, is, you know, we're all used to the McDonald's app, the Subway app. Uh, but um, is there another app that to, to what extent do store managers and workers have an app these days? Because that's a key element, I think. I think a lot of restaurants do have apps. They might have a iPad that they use in the restaurant as sort of their, it's really more of an operations app. Mm -hmm. It tells them, okay, it's time to take temperatures. Okay, it's time to, you know, whatever, mop the floor, clean the bathrooms, whatever. It gives them the whole list of things that they're supposed to do throughout, throughout the day. And it is kind of their operations manager but a lot of those iot devices feed into that where it says you know check the cooler the temperature of the cooler it's fine check the temperature of the cooler on the back line it's fine you know so iot devices in those uh, environments is makes it easier for them and more reliable quite frankly for them to go in and and record the temperatures because it's amazing when you have the old, uh, you know, chart on a clipboard, man, every day that cooler is 34 degrees and it never varies from 34 degrees because people just think that's the answer that they need to put there. So they don't bother checking it probably. And they just put 34 degrees. Um, I think there are other uses for IOT devices also that, you can hook them up to measure the uh, the efficiency of of your equipment. How many times does your compressor cycle on and off? Is it getting to the point where it's doing it too often and costing you money and you'd be better off paying for a service call to get it 
cleaned and checked out and rather than having your whole cooler or freezer go down and, and waste all the food that's in there. So there are opportunities for devices to do that. And then once again, that can go to your to your operations program, whether it's on a tablet or an iPhone or whatever, uh, so that you can, you know, maintain your equipment more efficiently. Very good. Well, let's talk a bit about supply chain and the opportunity there. You know, what are your thoughts on the state of the art for managing supply chain? If that's the new frontier, uh, where are we and, and where do you think this uh, needs to, to go? And, um, and, and how does um, uh, the new um, FDA rule, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually been a work, it's been developed over many, many years. So it's, uh, for some people, Correct. it's not, but it's now the law of the land. And we have until January the 20th, 2026 to comply. Correct. And on the other side of that, there's potentially civil criminal penalties for not complying. Um, and certainly huge reputational uh, risk uh, because um, uh, whilst some people will probably be late, other people won't. And so um, how's that going to make people look? So um, tell us a bit, but um, FISMA 204, as we call it for sure, is not the only thing that's happening in supply chain. What is the current state of the art in terms of managing uh, supply chains, uh, would you say, and where are the opportunities there? Let, let me just go back and touch on FISMA 204 first, if I could. Okay. You know, I think there's three general views right now on FISMA 204. One are brands that are attempting to meet it now. Um, they're going out, they're exploring new technology, whether it be IoT devices, RFID devices, relying on barcodes for scanning. They're exploring their their opportunities and what will work for them. And I think if they haven't been working in this arena at all, I think they're finding it to be uh, very challenging. There's no easy button. They're not going to get there overnight. They're not just going to tell all their suppliers, you have to put this barcode or this RFID tag or this uh, IoT tag on every single case, and it has to include this information. Um, that does not happen overnight in this world. Um, many, many of their supply chain partners will have, they're like, well, that's a technology request. We can get to it in maybe a year, year and a half. Yeah, because you know, nobody, no company, whether it's in the food service industry or outside, I, I don't think any company has enough, uh, you know, technology resources to do everything they want to do. So everybody always has to prioritize a list. And if it's a, something for just one customer, that's going to get down, that's going to be pushed down the priority list. So it's not going to be as easy as they think. Um, the other view is they're thinking about it. Yeah, we know the law is there. We know we're going to have to comply at some point. That's 2026. You know, it's only 2023. We got time. So they haven't even started looking. And then there are others that I think are firmly banking on the on the hope that com the compliance date's going to be pushed out because it is so hard. So they're they're 
they're the procrastinators. They're the ones that are really pushing, pushing back and going, yeah, we'll see if they really do anything about compliance. Because compliance, yeah, what the penalty is going to be hasn't really been clearly defined. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they they're, they might be the ones to say, you know, I'll, I'll take a risk and I'll do it after everyone else is doing it because then adoption is going to be easy. But I, I really do not agree with that because I think one thing that's got to change in this industry is we have to approach FISMA 204 as an industry and not as individual brands. If we don't all ask these our suppliers, our redistributors, our distributors to do the same thing, nothing's going to get done. We have to have some basic guidelines. I mean, you think back to EDI. I don't know if you're familiar with EDI yeah. documentation. Okay. Well, I, let's uh, we should spell it out a little yeah. bit. But, uh, yeah, so yes, personally, advanced shipping notices, Electronic all that sort of stuff. Electronic data interchange, yeah. right, yeah. right. But every single brand has their own version of what a, you know, EDI 856 is, you know, the, an ASN. And they all want a little different information. There's no standard anymore. It was supposed to be standardized, but it's it's really not. So for people that aren't familiar with EDI, we should just take a moment and explain a bit about what electronic data interchange is, just kind of the complete uh, novice uh, explanation. Um, yeah, I mean, it was designed to be a way for uh, companies to exchange information, whether it's something as simple as a PO and an invoice in a standardized format, and to do it electronically so it was more efficient didn't rely on somebody key punching it in. You could you could do it electronically and the data would flow through into your system and it would satisfy your needs uh, for whatever you know, whatever you know data you're looking for. Like I said, there's you know, there's a lot of different ones. There's POs, there's advanced shipping notices, there's load tenders, there's ASNs, there's um yeah, but there isn't there isn't actually a fully uh, GS one uh, FISMA two hundred four compliant EDI um, standard. Uh, it's certainly mentioned in um, the recommendations, and this you know one of the electronic documents that is exchanged from a distribution center and uh, a store. Uh, can be an advanced shipping notice, which is basically kind of a list of this is what I'm going to send you, but it doesn't necessarily have all of the, to use the FISMA FDA term terminology, the key data elements, uh, uh, the the source ID and so forth may not be in there. So we can't just say, oh, well, we use EDI, problem solved. Uh, and, and keep me honest here, is that correct? Right. No, that, that's exactly right. Uh, exactly right. And, and in the case of a distributor to a restaurant, just because a case was intended to go to restaurant number one on the route, it is all up to the driver when it gets to restaurant number one, if he picks that case off or he picks another case off. Right. Um, and And that becomes a real challenge in things where you have uh, pallet loaded items like like your french fries from McDonald's 
they don't they don't pack those on a truck by restaurant stuff they stop they put whole pallets of product on a truck so as it gets to the restaurant that's when it needs to record what actually was delivered because there might be three different lock codes and french fries on that on that uh, truck that day hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, um, uh, Fismatua for this these critical tracking events that you have to capture accurately. You can't just say, this is what we think. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, stuff happens. Uh, you, you actually need to know, uh, which either means you've got someone with a clipboard that's writing it down and then entering it into some sort of electronic system so that you can get the data to the FDA within 24 hours of their request. Um, or you have some auto ID automatic way of uh, either ambient IoT, um, IoT pixels, full disclosure, that's what my company sells, uh, RFID uh, or handheld scanners. And you've actually got someone who's at the restaurant who's doing the scanning. And, and the, the other kind of critical tracking event is receiving. So just saying I shipped it, to your point, is not enough. You need to know what was received. And that is, you know, obviously every every uh, restaurant wants to know what they've got. But, um, uh, you know, I think it's a fairly common scenario that the driver shows up and maybe he's uh, in the middle of nowhere and there's no one at the restaurant at three in the morning. Um, so um, you need to have some kind of system that actually um, makes sure that what is being put in the the the, the uh, the lettuce that's being put in the cooler is the uh, is is the batch that came from farm A rather than from farm B, uh, or you know that came in on day one rather than day two uh, from from a given farm. So the net is you need to have a whole level of receiving uh, and and just asking the driver to uh, check his own homework and. Uh, scribble his signature is probably not going to pass muster. Again, keep me honest that here, uh, Rick. Correct. Uh, but one thing I think that is, you, you mentioned GS1 before. Yes. And I think that is the crucial step number one in anything we're trying to do here. Uh, if we're not all talking the same language for the same product across our supply chain, then it doesn't matter the data that's collected at each point because no one will ever make sense of it all. Um, 
So starting with GS1 standards and requiring the use of a G10, the use of a, a global location number uh, across your entire supply chain is essential. And we did that at Subway. We, we joined the GS1 Food Service Initiative. We were one of the founding members in 2010. And we started requiring a global trade ID number, a G10, for every single product. And we didn't tell a manufacturer you have to change your, your number. We didn't tell a distributor that you have to change your product code number. And quite frankly, Subway didn't change theirs. They still had their own th- Mm-hmm. Uh, product and for you know product number, but we said add another field, and this is the G10 for Subway Turkey. And and the reason why that's important is that it has to be consistent, right, all the way from the, the point of, uh, of of origin where the product was packed or uh, notionally created. You can't the, the kind of by de facto you have different players and they identify the products differently. But if it's the same thing, you basically have to have that consistent um, uh, traceability lock code, which in GS1 standard parlance uh, would probably be a, a GTIN, uh, the global trade identification number. So that's the thing that changes, isn't it? It's like you've got to have consistency so that someone gets sick in uh, Enterprise Oregon uh, you can then go back and say, well, uh, I know what the uh, the GTIN is uh, that is part of that traceability lot code, and I know what the lot number is, and I know that that lot number was produced on this day at this farm uh, in Washington. Um, uh, and it can't be a different one. You can't be trying to do the math to correlate it. Um, and that's where the process change goes in. And uh, I don't know. Do you think... Uh, so Subway did that. Um, do you think uh, that's Correct. the state of the art everywhere, or is there? Uh... I think it it generally is now. Okay. Most brands have adopted GS1 standards, uh, which is great uh, because without them, you need an army of people to map data, and once again, you involve humans, and we all know that that can be um, that can be something that's challenging. But the other thing that you really need as step number two is an automated data aggregation system because you're going to be getting data from hundreds and maybe even thousands of different sources, suppliers, uh, distributors, redistributors, restaurants that either scan a barcode, you know, read an RFID tag, you know, read a, a, uh, Bluetooth, IoT device, whatever it is, that's creating data. And you have to capture it. You have to capture it automatically. And you need somebody or some organization or some tool that's going to aggregate all that data into one file that can be searchable. And and that way, when you're looking for Subway Turkey in a, you know, don't want to just say Subway, but if you're looking for Turkey with this G10 um, and you have a lock code, you can then go into this database and put in that G10 and the lock code you're looking for, and it can spit out everybody that's that has scanned or read that 
that lock code into their system. Uh, so data aggregation is is a huge, huge part of it. Uh, so we, once again, when I was at IPC, recently retired from IPC, uh, looking to do any kind of consulting work in this arena at all to help brands prepare for FISMA 204. But we had a data aggregation company many, many years ago. Uh, it was FoodLogic. That's now Trustwell. There's several out there that can do that type of work very, very efficiently. But that's a key. That is absolutely a key to being able to comply with the FISMA regulations. So you're collecting all the right da- data, and then you're having someone aggregate it into one system so that you can use it efficiently that's that's kind of the the basis for everything. Then the the last step is figuring out what tool you're going to rely on. What technology are you going to rely on? Uh, and I know a lot of people are still looking to rely on scanning barcodes. Um, and it can work. It can work, but there's many risks involved. And they are at every step of the supply chain. Number one, are the barcodes reliable? Number two, in distribution, are you, you know, are you going to have someone that's selecting those orders that absolutely scans a barcode on each individual case? Are they going to get there and say, okay, I need five cases of this, scan one barcode five times, and off they go? Um, and then in the restaurants, are you going to? We're going to have somebody that scans every single barcode that comes in the back door. So I think from my point of view, automation is what has to happen to truly meet the FISMA regulations. I think we have to get to a point of automating that data collection. Well, I, I totally agree. And um, in many ways, I think we've both personally placed some bets on this. You've uh, you've moved from IPC, a very long, illustrious career there, working and scaling one of the biggest supply chain operations for one of the largest uh, quick service restaurant um, businesses in the world. Um, and you focused on this, and now you've chosen this time to to consult more broadly with uh, this entire industry that having to, that's having to, to meet the deadline. And um, Certainly, um, you know, William, we decided that uh, you can use IoT pixels for for anything, these Bluetooth tracking devices. But uh, I, I believe that food safety is not only um, a good business, it's a kind of a worthwhile thing to focus on. Keeping people from getting sick uh, is, uh, is good. Um, and then from a business perspective, uh, I, I think uh, not just for for Rick Butner and Steve Statler at Willia, I think for every QSR chain, um, getting supply chain automated, which is really what's required to comply, is a huge opportunity for, for profit, uh, for reducing waste, for driving down the capital requirements uh, in your uh, supply chain to optimizing store operations, staffing, dealing with, you know, it's a chance to do some more automation so that these raw recruits we have working for us can do uh, uh, a better job. So 
yeah, it's a pain. You got to comply. It's the law. There's going to be penalties. There's reputational risk. But there's, a, I believe, a huge ROI um, when you look across staffing, um, uh, inventory levels, uh, waste reduction, food quality, freshness, taste. You know, there's just a massive opportunity if people start to apply the 21st century technology to their supply chain. So yeah, congratulations. You've got an amazing point of sale system and you've got kiosks in the front, but let's let's focus on the food. Uh, is uh, Right. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and uh, we did a proof of concept on that very thing in 25 restaurants. And that's exactly what we found that uh, we identified opportunities where distributors were delivering product with short shelf life. We identified opportunities where uh, operators within the restaurant weren't rotating their stock properly, which led to uh, product going to waste. We saw opportunities for them to be able to take more accurate inventories, and that led to more accurate ordering. Um, and in the future with AI, that's going to lead to not only suggestive ordering, but predictive ordering. And you, you're going to have restaurant managers that won't even have to place an order. The, you know, the system's just going to know what they need, but it all is reliant on collecting accurate data from the time that product gets in the door until it leaves. The other thing that was really uh, beneficial for our supply planning team was to see how long it took them to get through a case of product in a restaurant. How, what was the, the turn rate within the restaurant? And when you're dealing with promotional items, that's something you're never really sure of. But they could see it very clearly in these restaurants. Oh, it took them eight days to get through a case of product. Now I can really hone in my, my forecast and make sure we have enough product to get through the promotion, but not too much. So that gets back to your supply chain visibility. You have a lot more visibility into what the supply chain needs. It also helps to have visibility of lock codes at, at distributors. Uh, many times we would you know, expedite a or uh, cut a PO because we thought a DC was heavy in inventory, but we couldn't see the, the expiration dates on that product. In truth, they ordered more because they knew that some of that product was going to be expired and they couldn't ship it. So they, you know, they ordered more. So they'd have it to, to sell to our restaurants. And that was, you know, that's, we probably shouldn't have cut the POs. But anyway, a lot of efficiencies all the way through the supply chain that's what's going to be gained and you're right i think the the benefits and the the uh profits will far outweigh the cost of implementing any system just to chip in here i um i had always thought that with uh, for my day job uh, we have case level temperature tracking and i always thought that tracking that our route in transit would be one of the last things that happened because you think about the number of delivery vehicles that, uh, that exist, there's a huge number of them. But that's actually not the case. You know, we're seeing one of the largest retailers in the world uh, um, uh, 
preparing to put Bluetooth readers in every refrigerated container um, to measure the temperature at a case level. Um, and um, I actually just got back from grocery shop, the trade show this uh, this week, and we had someone driving around Las Vegas, an Uber driver, to sort of illustrate the point. We put um, half a dozen uh, of these tags. And I don't normally do this. I'm kind of feeling bad, but it was just so cool. i got to share it. So we had half a dozen of these temperature-sensing IoT pixel devices in basically the, the, the four corners of the middle of this cab and a heat map. And you could see the, 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 the Uber driver. And we had a little webcam so you could see them going through the car wash. And I was amazed that they were all different temperatures. And that's just in, a, in, a, in an Uber. So think about a refrigerated container and the, the, uh, the temperature map there all over the place. And it's borne out in the real world of uh, food delivery. We were seeing like strawberries for one of our customers being frozen and defrosted six times between the DC and the store. So you wonder why the shelf life is not good and people complain with what they get when they're at home. So if you can identify that, fix it, get a message to one of these apps, then that's better quality, better taste, less waste, um, and, uh, and, and then suddenly you've got a system that is pushing data to, to the, whatever the application is, uh, the uh, Trustwell, uh, uh, the iFood DS, uh, IBM uh, um, Logic, whatever right. it is, uh, iTrade Network, uh, there's uh, you know, getting the, you know, no one justifies, oh, we've got to spend money on an accounting system uh, now everyone accepts. Oh yeah, I need ERP. Well, I think people need the applications. That uh, by the way, we don't sell those applications. So <laughs> um, they need the applications. They give them the dashboards that allow them to get visibility and see when things are going wrong and press the button when the FDA calls, so that they don't have to throw away every bit of lettuce in the entire supply chain. Uh, and they just uh, um, purge the things that are impacted by uh, these uh, uh, events that we're uh, forced to deal with that are not going to go away. Well, sorry I interrupted you. Uh, we should probably wind up. We've been talking for a, a while, but any other key things about uh, FISMA that, uh, uh, you know, if I'm a um, if I'm the CEO, uh, CXO, uh, SVP of operations uh, at a, a quick service restaurant, you know, what should I be doing uh, to get ready for FISMA 204? Well, like I said, it, it's, you know, starting with your data, starting with how you collect and aggregate your data. But then you really ought to be doing proof of concept tests with the various tools and what you think is going to work best in your environment. Um, is it RFID? Is it, you know, Williot IoT devices? Uh, you know, you need to get out and use it in the real world. And then you have to start looking at some of your key suppliers and how will they implement it's not easy. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can that you can do it. Tagging in many, many different ways. Are you tagging at time of actual production? Are you tagging 
as you're palletizing or you're tagging, what, whatever. You, you, have to, you have to look at those opportunities. When are you going to put these devices on the cases? And how important is it to read every single device off of every pallet all the time? Or are you going to rely on a pallet tag? So there's a lot of things you need to start looking at as far as uh, how you're going to implement. And the only way to do that is to get into a manufacturing plant and, and, and try different things. What's going to work? And then you can take that model and move forward. But I do think uh, as an industry, it is key that we as quick service restaurant operators all start asking for basically the same thing. Because if we're all asking for something different, we don't have a prayer of everybody being able to meet FISMA 204 uh, by January 20th, 2026. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. In a lot of arenas, these brands never play together. But this is one that we have to come together as an industry and, and uh, you know, do what's best for the industry. Very good. And uh, there's, I think there's profits to be made, there's margins to be uh, saved, um, to, to be increased um, as well. Well, Rick, it's been a real pleasure talking. Um, we should check in again uh, uh, in, in a bit and see uh, see what you're seeing. But uh, I think you've chosen a really good time to uh, uh, plow your own furrow and, um, and and apply some of the expertise you've gathered over decades. Because um, I think people need help. And actually getting some help from the outside uh, is useful because uh, you can say things sometimes uh, as a uh, consultant that you couldn't say uh, when uh, you're talking to your boss. Um, so that objectivity um, and and also kind of a set of eyes that are seeing things across different uh, different businesses um, uh, is, is really valuable. So thanks very much. Rick, I like the look of the artwork uh, behind you. What, what, what is that? Uh, seems very tasteful. Uh, that's an artist we found over in uh, uh, Bel Air, Florida, that we really like. And yeah. kind of abstract. She uses, you know, various colors and gold yeah. in it, and you know, it. Uh, you know, we we really like it. This one she framed in a very old antique frame that we very carefully hung because I think if I move it, it's going to fall apart. But. Uh, but we love it. It's sitting here in our dining room, and and that was the best spot for uh, for lighting and visibility. I think so. It gets a place behind me here. So, well, as you know, we have this uh, warm up question that gets cut and paste to the end of the show, uh, 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 which is what three songs uh, are meaningful to you and and why. Um, and I've asked this uh, well over a hundred times, uh, and only once has someone said, "Actually, I don't like music, but I do like art." And so we ended up uh, <laughs> talking about the three paintings that uh, are meaningful to to him. Um, but um, so, are you in that category, or do you like music? I absolutely adore music. Okay. Love music. And right. In fact, in my house, you know, Friday night was always, there was never a TV on. It was always music. Awesome. Um, all kinds from 
you know, rock to jazz to country to, uh, you know, even Christian now. So it's, it's all kinds of music. And this was probably the hardest question on the whole, on the whole interview list here for me to pick the three favorite songs. Two came very easily and, and one was, one was a bit of a, a bit of a uh, challenge to narrow it down to three. All right. Well, Probably should have given you a top ten list, but yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, and and truth be told, if if people aren't aware, there's a show called Desert Island Discs. It's the longest running radio show in the world, and they get eight. But uh, given that we have less time <laughs> to devote, then I cut it down to three, which makes it harder for you. But uh, so, what what is your number one? Uh, well, my number one, my all-time favorite song is really Hotel California by the mm. Eagles. Uh, and as I was, um, uh, a young man, I guess, I was probably, I was definitely out of college at that point, but that was my favorite album. Absolutely my favorite album of all time. It just has so many good songs on it. The Last Resort, Life in the Fast Lane, Victim of Love, um, Wasted Time. I mean, it's just song after song was fantastic. And there's really nothing about the lyrics of Hotel California. It's just whenever it comes on, you know, I'm just, I'm happy. You know, that's kind of my happy place song. I love it. I know every word. I can, you know, I think I can play the air drums pretty well to it. But uh, that is my, my favorite song. I think if you were to list, you know, great albums ever, greatest albums ever, that would obviously be somewhere up there along with Sgt. Pepper, Bridge Over Troubled Water. So there's a set of just yes. pet sounds. Uh, I agree. And I remember, it's evocative for me. I remember listening to it as a kid uh, in a very rainy suburb of London, uh, thinking how amazing it would be to end up in uh, California, and uh, and that's where I live now. So, I, uh, I I don't want to appropriate your song, but uh, good choice. Okay, uh, number two for me is Stairway to Heaven, and I think that comes from a couple places. First of all, I just love the way they start with the blues and mellow, and then they ramp it up a little bit, and then they really get into the rock. At the end of the song, um, and I, I love the artistry of it. And yeah. then there's uh, words in there that have had meaning to me as well. Um, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. So I think that's always important to keep in mind that, you know, just because you're going down this one path, there's opportunities. Don't be uh, yeah. Don't be afraid of ta- of trying them. So, uh, so that's meant uh, something to me through the course of my life. Yeah, that's a great another great choice. And I, I've started. You, you can may see there's a, a vinyl turntable behind me. Um, it's a Riga Planer Three. If anyone's uh, into uh, uh, <laughs> audio equipment, uh, but I've found myself going to Walmart, actually, to buy vinyl. Walmart is uh, actually is a great source of uh, quality uh, vinyl, and I've been buying a whole bunch of Led Zeppelin uh, vinyl to, uh, um, uh, to to play on that thing. But uh, very cool. I love, I agree. 
with your number two. What's number three? Well, number three is a song that, that means a lot to me now. It's, uh, you know, I'm a Christian and part of my journey was getting to it through music. And uh, it's uh, I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me. And it, it the whole story of the song is, you know, what will it be like when I first see Jesus? You know, mm-hmm. After I die, I go to heaven. What, what will I do when I first see Jesus? And uh, that song's just had a lot of a lot of meaning to me, uh, and has really helped me in my uh, my Christian walk. That's amazing. That's uh, very cool. And and it was also a very good movie. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie. It was a very good movie. Please do send us a link. We'll publish it because that wasn't on my list. Um, and uh, But do send us a link and we'll include it in the show notes along with the, the other two, which I think everyone won't have any trouble finding. Um, but what? how did music help you um, in your path to Christianity? Well, I, I think it just helped deepen my path. You know, I, I had been going to church really all my life and but really didn't fully grasp what it what it meant and what I should be focusing on and what I should be doing. So um, as I got into a community down here in Miami 15, 16 years ago, and they really got me kind of turned on to some Christian music and started listening to it more and more. And, and uh, you know, just the, the messages within the music um, really helped deepen my understanding of what it what it truly means to be a Christian and to uh, to have a closer closer uh, and deeper belief in Jesus. Makes sense. Yeah, there's um, um, obviously music has played a big role in in many faiths, not all of them, but uh, many of them. And I think a lot of us experience some kind of transcendence that maybe helps you. Uh, open your mind to, you know, beyond the uh, mundane, everyday things that we get caught up in. So I think it's there for a reason, isn't it? Very good. Well, thank you for that, Rick. I, yeah. Yep. Um, how did you get into the quick service business, a quick service restaurant, restaurant business? It was my very first job when I was 16 years old. Um, I started working at Hardee's and worked up to uh that was my junior year in high school my senior year i became an assistant manager a night manager there and every year when i came every summer when i came home from uh college they took me back on as a fill-in manager so they could get vacations uh so it was kind of in my blood from a very early age Um, when i got out of college i worked on wall street for a little over three years found myself not really happy in anything I was doing in Wall Street. Um, and then I went by and uh, they they had moved me to Fort Lauderdale to open a new branch. And when I driving by, I saw them building another Hardee's. I said, you know, maybe I'll get back into this for a little while and see where it takes me. And 40 years later, I'm still in food service. So... I've had a lot of different roles in food service, not just running restaurants and multiple restaurants, multiple concept, uh, you know, 
facilities such as travel plazas and things like that. But I've uh, gotten out of the operations side into more the the operations, the more the supply chain operations side. And I helped build a brand. I helped uh, establish food safety and quality uh, department at Subway. And, and then I transferred to the supply chain team and, and focused on supply chain operations. How can we make things more efficient? And it, it really ties all the way back to restaurant operations. You always look for efficiencies and how you can make it better. And, and that's what I've been doing for the past 40 years. Very good. Well, Rick, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. We've really just started the conversation. So thanks very much for uh, coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that was Rick Butner, who never ceases to amaze me, uh, the stories that people have and how much you learn about people from talking to them about music, which is why I do it. Hope you enjoyed that last bit of the show. I want to thank Aaron Hammock, who is our editor and uh, produces uh, the product that you've either watched or or, uh, or listened to. Also, want to thank Brooke, who is our uh, uh, marketing specialist that's uh, focusing on getting the word out about this. And I want to thank you most of all for listening certainly doesn't escape us that we only get to to do this when you listen or watch so if you've got to this stage uh, then you're truly a a committed and dedicated listener and we really appreciate you do uh, review us if you would it it really helps us get the word out uh, and allows us to continue doing the uh, the work that we uh, we do speak to you next time 